It's time to get ready for Sunday. A weekly preview of the scripture readings in the upcoming Sunday Masses celebrated in a Catholic church near you. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. In the next few minutes, I hope to offer some thoughts that will help the scripture of this week speak more clearly to you. Today, that means the readings that are part of the Masses on August 29th, 2021, which in church speak is the 22nd Sunday in ordinary time of year B in the three-year lectionary cycle. As is my custom, I'll look at the second reading first, since it is unique in its purpose relative to the rest of the scripture for the day. At this Mass, we begin a five-Sunday journey through the letter of James, one of seven New Testament letters known as the Catholic Epistles. You probably can't tell from listening to that label that Catholic begins with a lowercase c, not a capital C. These seven letters are labeled Catholic, or universal, because they are not addressed by their writers to any particular community in any specific city or region, nor are they addressed to an individual person, but rather to early church members anywhere in the empire. There is special attention given to Jewish Christians. At the beginning of this letter, it addresses the twelve tribes in the dispersion. But these seven letters also are a witness to Gentile Christians. This letter was traditionally attributed to a James called the brother of the Lord. However, there was a good deal of uncertainty about it even in the early church, and more recent scholarship has pointed toward this being a document from a Hellenistic, that is, Greek-influenced Jewish community near the end of the first century. Today's passage is something of a redacted excerpt from the letter's first chapter. By that I mean what we hear leaves out a number of verses that appear in between the verses included. It starts with verses 17 and 18, skips two and a half verses, includes one and a half, skips four, then concludes with one final verse. This is not an uncommon occurrence in the way the lectionary is put together. It is usually for the purpose of concentrating on a specific theme or themes within a given book, letter, or chapter as a whole. It's a short excerpt, but it contains a multifaceted message. Taken as a whole, it is an exhortation to the members of the church to live holy and virtuous lives, demonstrating their faith by acting with mercy and justice, especially toward the most vulnerable of the society. The first teaching here is about the immutable character of God. The title, Father of Lights, is a reference to the lights from the heavens which illuminate and energize life on earth. Although moon and stars in the heavens vary in the light they provide on the basis of movement, God's outpouring of light, energy, sustenance, grace, life itself, never varies. All light, all that is good, has its birthplace in God. Then, as a second teaching here, the author writes of the importance of the word in the life of a Christian. 
we hear about God giving us birth by the word of truth. This is a reference to baptism into Jesus, the word made flesh. To be some kind of first fruits is to follow the resurrected Jesus, whom Paul has called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the Christian is to welcome the word that has been planted within you, which I read as an allusion to the indwelling Holy Spirit conveyed through baptism. The final teaching in this excerpt, and a major theme throughout the entire letter, is about the inseparable nature of faith and good works. In this, James seemingly contradicts some interpretations of St. Paul and the teaching of Martin Luther around the concept of sola fide, Latin for faith alone. This Luther interpreted as only faith is necessary for salvation. The problem here is that James emphasizes throughout his epistle that faith apart from works is meaningless. Luther famously referred to the James letter as an epistle of straw and did not include James in his first translation of the Bible, but later did reinsert it. It was St. Paul's teaching that faith is a gift from God to the believer. We cannot merit or earn faith without God's grace. This remains the teaching of the Catholic Church. Grace remains primary in Catholic teaching. Neither faith nor works merit our justification. Justification simply means righteous. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. The Catholic Church teaches largely due to James's letter, justification is received by faith and perfected by works of charity, but it is not earned by works alone. It is faith in Christ that changes or transforms our hearts. This transformation is seen in our work. For example, it's inconceivable that a true Christian follower of Jesus would not share a portion of his own sufficient food, shelter, or clothing with someone in need. Nor would a person transformed by Christ knowingly cheat another. Here, then, is a reading from the letter of James. Dearest brothers and sisters, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Humbly welcome the word that has been planted in you, and is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deluding yourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The Word of the Lord.
on to the first reading for Sunday, after which we'll take a look at the responsorial psalm and the gospel. In this progression of the different scripture selections, you should find a noticeable coherence. This, then, is a reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses said to the people, Now, Israel, hear the statutes and decrees which I am teaching you to observe, that you may live and may enter in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In your observance of the commandments of the Lord your God, which I enjoin upon you, you shall not add to what I command you, nor subtract from it. Observe them carefully, for thus will you give evidence of your wisdom and intelligence to the nations, who will hear of all these statutes and say, This great nation is truly a wise and intelligent people. For what great nation is there that has gods so close to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation has statutes and decrees that are as just as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The Word of the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of both the Hebrew and the Christian Bibles. Deuteronomy begins in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. That is, the end of the 40-year wanderings of the nation of Israel in the wilderness following their exodus from slavery in Egypt. The name Deuteronomy derives from a Greek word meaning second law, or a copy of the law. The Jewish people have completed their long journey and are now standing on the plains of Moab, ready to enter the land God promised them centuries earlier, the land of Canaan. Unlike the other books of the Pentateuch written in third-person form, the book of Deuteronomy is written as Moses' first-person account to the Israelites. Many scholars and theologians have characterized the book, all 34 chapters, as a lengthy sermon from Moses to the people. You might want to keep this in mind the next time you're checking your watch during the homily at Mass. 34 chapters. The book has also been described as Moses' farewell speech. It is actually three separate discourses delivered by Moses. At their conclusion, here's a spoiler alert, Moses will die. As we read last week, Joshua will then assume the task of leading the Israelites. If you read the entire book, you will get a sense that Moses is dismayed. The 40 years of wandering were very difficult. The people often grumbled and complained against Moses and against God. At alternating stages of the journey they followed, then fell away from the sole worship of God. They broke their covenantal agreement with God. The setting for Deuteronomy is on the plains opposite to and in sight of the valley of Beth Peor. 
It was there that one of Israel's greatest apostasies took place, the worship of the false god Baal, as is recorded in the book of Numbers. Moses' law-giving in Deuteronomy is the only biblical covenantal wording not delivered on a mountaintop. In his addresses, you get a sense of Moses' frustration and his exhaustion. As an example, we know from earlier in the Pentateuch that it was Moses' lack of faith at the waters of Meribah that resulted in his exclusion from entering the promised land. Yet in Moses' speech, there is a decidedly different emphasis. The Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. Imagine, after all Moses had done on behalf of the Jewish people, for God, and the numerous trials that accompanied his leadership, he is at the end of the journey, but is precluded from the crowning achievement, leading his people into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a book designed for a rebellious, not a righteous people, and the sense of Moses' anger and sadness permeates the book. Nevertheless, the importance of Deuteronomy in the canon of Scripture is significant. It ranks alongside Genesis, the book of Psalms, and the book of Isaiah in the magnitude of its theological impact. Deuteronomy serves as the transitional book of the Pentateuch, leading into the second section of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the historical books. It serves as the theological and political constitution of Israel for the rest of its history. From the time of Moses up to the current moment, faithful Jews have recited the Shema prayer from this book twice each day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Today's responsorial psalm is easily seen as connected to both the reading from Deuteronomy and the content of the upcoming letter of James. It, like Jesus in the Gospel, concentrates on acting in accord with divine justice rather than observing mere societal conventions. Its elements are taken from the 15th psalm. As usual, I will read the refrain only at the beginning and at the end. The one who does justice will live in the presence of the Lord. Whoever walks blamelessly and does justice, who thinks the truth in his heart and slanders not with his tongue, who harms not his fellow man, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, by whom the reprobate is despised, while he honors those who fear the Lord, who lends not his money at usury and accepts no bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things shall never be disturbed. Many are the troubles of the just one, but out of them all the Lord delivers him. He watches over all his bones, not one of them, shall be broken. The one who does justice will live in the presence of the Lord.
Now on to the gospel. Having completed Jesus' delivery of the Bread of Life discourse in last week's gospel, the lectionary returns us to Mark's gospel today, and in doing so, begins the final major segment of ordinary time readings for this liturgical year. We'll listen first, and then talk about it. This is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. When the Pharisees, with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, they observed that some of his disciples ate their meals with unclean, that is, unwashed, hands. For the Pharisees, and in fact all Jews, did not eat without carefully washing their hands, keeping the tradition of the elders. And on coming from the marketplace, they did not eat without purifying themselves. And there are many other things that they have traditionally observed, the purification of cups and jugs and kettles and beds. So the Pharisees and scribes questioned him, Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders, but instead eat a meal with unclean hands? He responded, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. You disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition. He summoned the crowd again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that enters one from outside can defile that person, but the things that come out from within are what defile. From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within, and they defile. The Gospel of the Lord. For context, prior to this chapter, Mark has shown us Jesus at a high point of the popularity of his earthly ministry. He has performed many miracles. Jesus has raised Jairus's daughter from the dead, multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed many thousands, walked on water, healed a woman of her hemorrhage, cured a man possessed by a demon. From this chapter onward, as we will read in the coming weeks, Jesus's ministry is becoming a noticeable threat to the Jewish leadership. We will read more and more about antagonism between Jesus and this group that ultimately ends with Jesus' death in Jerusalem. Jesus' teachings are also becoming more difficult for his followers. The setting for Sunday's passage is the small fishing village of Gennesaret, located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Remember how the passage opened, describing Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. This is significant. Pharisees and scribes coming all the way from Jerusalem to observe Jesus and his disciples in Galilee. 
It's a big deal. It's a big difference. Jerusalem was the undisputed center of Jewish religious and political life. Only the most famous and respected Jewish leaders worked and taught in Jerusalem. Galilee was dusty, dirty, working class. No rabbi of any stature worked or taught in Galilee. That Jewish leaders from Jerusalem would come to Galilee to listen to a Galilean teacher would be unheard of in first century times, and is some evidence that Jesus' ministry had become well known enough to get onto the metaphorical radar of the powers of the day. Ostensibly, the conflict of the moment involves the Jewish ritual of washing hands before eating and a reference to other Jewish purification rules. The Jewish precedent for these rules derive from the Ten Commandments and the 613 rules collectively known as the Law or the Mosaic Law. Many of these laws or rules developed over the centuries as part of ritual practice. But make no mistake, it was not out of concern for public health that the men from Jerusalem challenged the disciples of Jesus. By the way, notice how often it is that challenges are directed at his disciples rather than at Jesus himself. This is an argument over ritual purity, not sanitary practices. In Sunday's passage, the Jerusalem Pharisees and scribes are attempting to embarrass Jesus. The teacher is responsible for the behavior of his disciples, and their behavior falls outside the conventions of good Jewish behavior. How can Jesus claim to be a rabbi of any significance, have any true faithful Jewish followers, if he ignores the traditions of the elders? As is always the case when his detractors try to entrap or discredit Jesus, he is able to turn their argument around, place it in sharp contrast with divine will, divine law, and expose their own hypocrisy. Jesus might appear, at first glance, to be challenging the dietary laws of his own people, but notice how his emphasis falls onto the real rather than the merely symbolic, and draws the distinction between behaving in accord with societal custom, traditions of the elders, versus behaving in accord with divine justice and righteousness. He makes it clear which is truly important. As one commentator put it, as in much of Jesus' teaching, his intent appears not so much to disregard external rules as to focus on internal realities. That's about enough, don't you think? I hope you can make it to Mass this weekend, either in person or online, as you are able. And I pray that the blessing of God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is visible in your life now and forever. God bless you.